This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for around 14 years now and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience, a 15% discount, not on one purchase, but continuously. And I'll give you that code in just a moment. But I want to do a product showcase on their new Atlas sneakers and boots. So I'm a big believer in the fact that footwear can either improve our health or break down our health. And the Atlas sneaker actually has a new foam system that disperses the body weight, whether just the body weight, whether it's a a vest and a gun, whether it's EMS bags being carried. And on top of that, they're lightweight, despite having the same protection that's required in the tactical space. So I have a pair of Atlas sneakers myself, and I can attest they're extremely comfortable. On top of footwear, of course, 5.11 offers a gamut of uniforms and equipment, whether it's plate carriers, backpacks, flashlights, you name it, they have it. All you have to do is go to 5.11tactical.com and use the code SHIELD15. That's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 5.11tactical.com and you will save every time you purchase. And to learn more about the company 5.11 Tactical, You can listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by GovX. And as you know, I only have companies on here that I truly use and believe in myself. And GovX is a complete no-brainer. If you are a member of fire, police, EMS, corrections, military, and even hospital setting doctors and nurses, you qualify for the free membership to GovX, which marries us with discounts from so many companies that you probably already use. And on top of that, it's not just for active duty, but also retirees, veterans, and volunteers. So for our professions, having to purchase so much of our equipment, every single dollar counts. And understanding that, GovX has reached out to you, the Behind the Shield podcast audience, to offer you an additional saving. On your first purchase of $50 or more, if you use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, they will give you an additional $15 off your first purchase. And another layer of GovX is GovX Gives Back. Every month, they're going to sell a different patch, and the proceeds from that patch goes to a charity that supports either first responders or military. So as I mentioned before, go to GovX.com, G-O-V-X.com, Register for your free membership and save every single time you purchase. Welcome to episode 402 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Youssef Badu. Now, Youssef is a Marine who actually grew up in Kuwait and as a young boy even experienced the Iraqi invasion. So we discuss a host of topics from his early childhood to some of the atrocities he saw within his own country moving to the US, joining the military, and then now lecturing all over the world regarding threat detection and security. So an incredible conversation. Before we get to that interview, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So that being said, I introduce to you Youssef Badu. Enjoy. So 
Yusuf, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Oh, thanks, James. Uh, what your show and what you're providing your listeners, the pers- the EMS and fire out there and police is fantastic. And and this this type of messaging needs to get out there a lot more. Absolutely. Well, first question then, where are we finding you on planet Earth today? <laughs> at the moment, I'm like a leprechaun. Catch me if you can. But at the moment, I'm home getting ready for Christmas here in sunny Orange County, California. Beautiful. All right. Well, actually, I lived in uh, Orange County for a while. I worked for Anaheim Fire. So you don't have to say exactly, but where roughly are you located in in the county? Oh, I'll tell you. It's Dana Point, kind of little sleepy surfer town down here, right at the edge. Beautiful. Beautiful. All right. Well, obviously, um, you know, anyone knows your backstory. That's not where you were born. So (laughs) I think it's fascinating your your early story. So uh, if we could start with where you were born. And then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents actually did and how many siblings. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, it's not exactly a standard uh, upbringing. I'm originally from Kuwait. Uh, my father's Kuwaiti. My mom's American. So I grew up in kind of a dual citizen household. Um, it was a little strange when friends came over because, you know, my mom uh, speaks perfect Arabic. You know, so we'd have a three-way conversation. I'd speak Arabic to my dad. I'd speak English to my mom. She'd respond in English to my dad. So it freaked my friends out when they came over. Um, I was there for the invasion. I was about seven or eight years old. So we kind of went through that, got evacuated to the States. And in um, three or four weeks after the invasion had already happened. So we were there in Kuwait while it was being occupied. And they allowed us to get evacuated. And long story short, um, went back after the invasion, went to school out there, came to high school out here in America, in Michigan, and ended up enlisting in the Marine Corps. And that's kind of really how the this trajectory of my life got started uh, with the Combat Hunter Program and the situational awareness is enlisting in the Marine Corps, doing multiple combat tours over there. Um, if any prior military listening, you know, I, I, I was an infantryman and I spoke Arabic for my three tours in Iraq. So do the math. Every, you know, Uncle Uncle Sam got us 10 pounds of flesh out of me there. But <laughs> uh, that kind of kind of brings us to present day. Beautiful. Well, I love to kind of explore you know, early days. So um, firstly, how did your mom and dad meet if he was Q80? So my dad was actually a flight engineer. Uh, back in the day, I, I don't think they have him anymore, but you'd have the third guy in the, pl- uh, the, you'd have the pilot, co-pilot and the flight engineer. So that's what he went to school for. And he actually went to uh, university in Michigan. And uh, my mom was going there for nursing. So that's where they met up many, many years ago. Brilliant. Well, I think a lot of us are aware of, you know, Desert Storm. And I, I remember being a young boy, seeing, you know, the the um, the invasion and obviously our military response in a little town in England. It was actually I was on vacation. I was on a holiday time, seaside town. Um, but, you know, I don't think many of us are well versed. Now, obviously, from a Kuwait lens, I'm sure you and obviously your father's relayed, you know, what happened, what Kuwait looked like before the invasion and after. So, if you wouldn't mind, kind of paint that picture for us of that time for, you know, the QAE Nationals. Yeah, sure. So big question. And I was pretty young at the time. I, I was like a kid in a candy store. I, I loved everything I was seeing. I literally remember being on my dad's shoulders as the Iraqi tanks rolled in on the highway. And I just thought it was the coolest thing. Um, fast forward, you know, 20 years later, big surprise, I joined the military. But 
here's one thing I, I'll give you a couple anecdotes, James, is people don't realize or, you know, we've forgotten that, you know, Kuwait is a very westernized cu- culture because of the invasion. Uh, you'll go there during, you know, Independence Day that we celebrate every year. And to this day, you'll see still see American flags flying all over the place. Uh, you won't hear about that in news media, but, you know, America really pulled us out of a lurch there. At the time, uh, the Iraqi army was the third largest standing army in the entire globe. So they went over our defenses like a speed bump. So big surprise and shock. But um, talk about formative years in my life, being in a situation where your country gets invaded, then finding out the news that the American, that the Marines are coming in, the Marines have landed and they've retaken your home country. You know, I'm sure a psychologist could pick that apart, but that really added to the trajectory. Oh, I'm sure. And I've re- read that you were um, helped out of the city where you live by Canadian forces. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I got a, always got a special place in my heart for the Canadians. Um, so my mom was part of what the U.S. Embassy had was the basically like a warden's program. So if anything were to happen, uh, you know, people would be in touch with each other. And everyone loves Canadians. So at the time, if you had an American passport, you were allowed out of the country. That's what they said. Saddam said, hey, if you're American, you can go. Uh, So obviously my father couldn't go. But my brother, who was American and Kuwaiti, um, he looked a little bit older. So that could have been a problem. Heck, he could have been drafted into the Iraqi army. So long story short, we got hooked up by Canadians and they drive us out of the country to the airport where we can fly out. And as soon as those Canadian passports come out, everyone's like, go ahead, have a good day. You know, know, no one had a problem with Canadians. So... (laughs) And then what about the stories um, from that evasion? I mean, obviously, you've got the Iraqi, you know, um, army invading Kuwait. Were there any horror stories that you heard of or see or saw or anything like that from that invasion specifically on your people? So not me as a child specifically seeing it, but after the fact and, and hearing about a couple different incidences. And there were actually some pretty bad incidences. You had rebellions. You had uh, rebellions amongst the Kuwaiti citizens. I, I remember this woman because she was actually a neighbor of, a, of our families. She was a neighbor of a friend of our family. And she was murdered by the Iraqi soldiers. She was a government worker. And um, it was a Ministry of Defense records. So it had a records on all citizenship and you know where you lived and so on and so forth. And she took it on herself the day the invasion happened. She ran in there and she started burning all the documents, all those important documents that the Iraqi intelligence wanted. She went in there and burned the whole thing and they had executed her for that. Um, so there were obviously instances of, of war, but oftentimes you don't hear about some of the mm, things that only warp can produce. Like I'll give you a story that my grandma told me. Um, This is like right in the middle of the invasion. Iraqis are in charge of Kuwait. And she gets a knock on her door. And it's this kind of skinny little Iraqi guy. And he's got, you know, a squad behind him, you know, across the street. And he goes, I'm really sorry, ma'am. Like, I feel so bad, but we don't have any food. We don't have any money. Can we just like drink from the, the water hose and have a piece of bread? And she kind of shakes her finger at him. She's like, oh, you guys are doing bad, but okay, come on in. And she gave him a drink of water and, you know, gave him some bread. And at the time, Saddam had thrown that huge army. There were a bunch of conscripts. You gave him no ammunition, no food. So you see a lot of stories similar to that happening where these people didn't, you know, even have food crossing into Kuwait. So, yeah, there was bad stuff that happened. There was glimmers of, of uh, you know, positive humanity sprinkled throughout, though. Yeah, I mean, the heroism of, of the woman protecting all those lives by destroying the records, that, that's a story that should be heard. 
You know, you know what? That's that one, and I can't believe I didn't think of this. You can actually, your listeners can actually look this up. Talk about a blast from the past. There was a house, and that was where I think fifteen Kuwaiti citizens stood a, a basically a rebellion, and they surrounded the house with you know a tank platoon of Iraqi tanks, and they just obliterated this house. They shelled it, they shot it up, and they killed everybody on the inside. And the Kuwaiti government said, you know what? We're going to keep this as a monument. So you can literally still go into this neighborhood and there's people living next door to it. It's a it's a living monument. And around the whole city block, they've actually spray painted where the shell struck and where the people died. So it's a living memorial to these um, Kuwaitis that died during that rebellion. Uh, really puts things into perspective when you're walking through a house like that. And they keep it preserved, too. Yeah, that's incredible. And I think that's the problem with what we see a lot of the times is we don't learn from history you know and, and, mm-hmm. and often since mm-hmm. it's kind of swept under the car even some of the tragedies that we have in our own professions you know there'll be a near miss there'll be you know maybe maybe a, an incident where an officer was at fault or someone died as opposed to a lot of the gray areas that we're you know that we see that people present and that isn't the case but um you know well we do need to learn from that tragedy so i think that's great that they have kept it there yep yep i i went to dc a few years back and I promised I, I wanted to bring my wife there because if you've never been and you can have a similar experience, but standing in, in, in the National Mall and seeing some of our monuments, man, talk about punching the gut, very emotional, kind of powerful moment. And with that house next door to me, it was literally a few blocks from my house. I guess thinking about it, we don't really have those monuments of, of a crazy times right in front of your face. Yeah, no, exactly. Well, I know that you returned back to Kuwait for to finish up some of your school. So what was it like returning after the invasion? It was um, very interesting. You know, this is where I'm starting to become a little bit more conscious of, of the craziness. We just spent a year in America and we went back. And it's funny because growing up, I went to an American school in Kuwait. Again, very westernized. You can go there and there's a British school of Kuwait, the American school of Kuwait, the English school of Kuwait. So when I went back, I was amongst um, not only Kuwaitis, obviously, at the school, but Americans and a lot of Canadians again. Um, Dalhousie Medical University, there are a lot of Canadian transplants that stood up the medical industry in Kuwait. So that's kind of where I grew up with. And it's funny because you have these American army kids growing up in Kuwait learning fluent Arabic. You have these blonde haired, blue eyed, you know, army brats running around speaking Arabic, you know, interesting times going back to school there. Absolutely. Well, then, so what took you ultimately to the U.S.? So at that point, my mom had had moved back to Michigan and I was the youngest at the time and I'd moved with her. And that coincided with me going into like the freshman year of high school. So I basically came to America and did high school. Um, So that was interesting in itself. Um, And then the military was always going to be an option for me because I was kind of a knucklehead, obviously, in high school, and I was getting close to not having credits to you know, graduate and all this, so I ended up joining a military academy. I couldn't get to boot camp fast enough. So I, I joined uh, this academy the senior year of my high school. I'd go through it, and I'd go to Marine Corps boot camp after the fact. I didn't realize this. This was a state-run military academy. You had to volunteer. You had to want to be there, but honestly, you know, they kicked the crap out of me. Uh, James, <laughs> they put hands on you. So when I got to boot camp and I found out and they could just make you do push-ups and run in place, I was like, hey, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> Trial by fire. Exactly. Yeah, I'll take it. Right. Well, then just just briefly, when you c- went from Kuwait to the US, um, you know, sometimes we see uh, 
some very shallow, blinkered reactions to a certain race following, you know, a conflict. Did you have any issues or were you with a bunch of, you know, good men and women when you were in high school age? So, okay, interesting question, James. I, I grew up in a, I'm, I, I tell people I'm from Michigan and they're like, oh, Dearborn. And if you're from Michigan, you'll get that joke because a lot of Arabs live in, in Dearborn. I'm like, no, I'm not from Dearborn. I'm actually from like a, you know, you know, not very diverse little town, a little farming town. But it was a great high school. No one ever gave me guff or be an Arab, uh, anything like that. And I don't know. I mean, that stuff exists in the world, but I was never privy to it consciously. Could that be because I wasn't aware? <laughs> yeah, maybe could be. But, you know. There's also a portion I personally believe in, in how you carry yourself. So, no, I never honestly never really dealt with that. And in the Marine Corps, too, which is wild, uh, being an Arab in the Marine Corps infantry, you know, that's like a trifecta. But, you know, it was just nothing but a band of brothers going out there to do a job. Yeah. Well, another uh, angle is you think that actually in reality, there's a lot less dickheads in the world than people realize. Absolutely, James. Absolutely. I mean, they're out there. We don't have to go making up dickheads. You know, they're <laughs> they're out there by themselves. Go look at any Facebook comment section, you know. Um, but, you know, yeah, is there evil out there? Is there prejudice and, you know, all this bad stuff? Absolutely. But for as much as it is there, there's there, we're missing all the good and positive things happening. Yeah, no, I agree completely. I think that's what, you know, most people don't realize is, you know, we just hear the squeaky wheels and they're, they're on opposing sides. I'm not picking on one side of whatever, you know, scale we're talking about. But yeah, I think most people, when it comes to race, you know, color, creed, sexual orientation, most people are just like, do your thing. You know, we're, we're all sharing the human experience. Yep, exactly. I'm going to get as much as I can for me and mine without violating anybody's rights, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, what about athletics? I mean, you went into the Marine Corps, I'm assuming, you know, that, that athletically that wasn't too much of a challenge either. So what, what did you play when you were a child? Um, not much, really. I was, it was track and, track and field. I was a sprinter for a long time, uh, which served me great when we're running three, you know, three, four, five miles in the Marine Corps. So I did track, you know, growing up, but honestly wasn't really sports orientated. Um, my, my high school was very football and coming from Kuwait, I didn't really have that. And I could tell you a story coming in from high school. It was like freshman year, and everyone played football there. You know, I, in Kuwait, everyone played soccer. So on the schedule, they said, hey, you can sign up for football camp. I was like, yeah, that sounds cool. <laughs> it, was, it was summertime. It was like three weeks summertime. I was like, yeah, I'll go learn to, you know, do football. And James, I got creamed for like three weeks. I lasted. I stayed the whole time, but I just got beat. I didn't realize um, that training camp is just basically extra practice for the team. So <laughs> that's the extent of my American football career. <laughs> <laughs> See, I would have made the mistake as a young man thinking it was, you know, soccer, football. That's what we call it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'd be like, what, what are these pads for? Wait a second. What did I sign up for? <laughs> yep. Yeah, then I, I I learned real quick what a lineman can do running. I, I've seen these people in school. I'm like, man, you're a big guy. You got a lot of weight on you. And I didn't realize they could move that fast. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's crazy. All right. Well, then, so your military journey. So tell me about, you know, your experience then post military academy, what your boot camp, like, excuse me, what your boot camp experience is like, and then the, the class you took after that. Yeah. So getting into the military, again, another kind of strange story. You people, you know, will often join the military in times of peace. You might, you know, retire, never fire a weapon in anger. Maybe you've never deploy, but. Um, at that time after 9-11, that wasn't the case. So 
and we had invaded Afghanistan. I'd watched 9-11 happen. I think it was 10th grade, sophomore in high school. And so Afghanistan was already happened when I got to boot camp. And the invasion was already in the works. So when I graduated boot camp, normally they'll send you to your unit, you know, and you start training with them and so on and so forth. When I got out of boot camp, they were already forward deployed, getting ready to cross the invasion line. So literally I came out of boot camp or I'm sorry, boot camp. We did our follow on school, infantry school in Camp Pendleton. And then from there, we literally got loaded on planes and got sent directly over to uh, Kuwait to stage on the uh, invasion line. So I didn't even meet my unit before I was going forward. And uh, we landed. It was kind of a ragtag group of us trying to catch up to the unit. So they'd already pushed forward. So it was me and, you know, three or four other privates and a staff sergeant thumbing rides trying to catch up to our unit in the middle of an invasion. So that was my first real world exposure into the Marine Corps as, as an 18 year old. And, um, the invasion was nuts. We, it was a lot of jubilation from the Iraqi people coming under the Saddam. So the invasion, a lot of good positive vibes from them. Going back for the second term, not so much. This is when the invasion had kicked off and the or the insurgency had kicked off and we started seeing IEDs. And then it went into a pretty kinetic, rough and tumble kind of fight, you know? Yeah. Now, obviously, you know, with you coming from Kuwait, I'm sure the the interpretation excuse me the interpreter skill that you had was was invaluable now did you speak arabic in in um kuwait or was it farsi so i we speak arabic in uh, in kuwait and iraq and i spoke really bad arabic so if that helps you you know <laughs> um, in arabic people often don't realize you have like proper arabic like the queen's arabic uh, which is spoken in radio broadcasts anything official uh, but then you have spoken Arabic, which is what everybody else talks in. And like, for example, at the time, Iraq technically is 70 percent illiterate towards Arabic because no one really speaks that kind of proper Arabic. So I had the slang so I could get down in there and talk with anybody. No problem. But they would take me to like a high level meeting with a colonel or I'd have to, you know, some officious thing. And I'd have a lot of trouble interpreting trying to, I'm like, and I'd have to tell the guys like, dude, just talk to me normal, man. I can't even understand what you're saying. So my gutter Arabic kind of pulled me along where you'd have, uh, uh, somebody who doesn't have an Arabic background and they'll send them to the defense language Institute to get trained. If you don't have an Arabic background and that's all you learn, I've seen it happen right in front of me. I'll have those translators go talk to their first Iraqi on the street and they'll turn around going, what the hell did he just say? I have no idea what's happening right now. So it's uh, colloquial. So that definitely helped us out there. Yeah. Now with you know communication being so key, and I can imagine you know, there's so many lives were lost probably just from misunderstandings through you know, some of the conflicts we had recently. Were there any uh, specific, excuse me, any particular situations that you remember where there was a near miss purely because you were able to actually communicate? <laughs> yeah. I got a bunch of those, um, <laughs> James, but I'll tell you a personal one, a personal journey for me. Okay. So I could say you're telling you're definitely tactical situations like that. But the one that really is um, kind of near to me is I was actually in the FOB. We were in the base. We, we would go out for three weeks at a time, stay out in the field, and then come back for a few days to shower up, clean everything, and go do it again, you know, rinse and repeat. And we had a contingent of Iraqi Border Patrol guys that we worked with out and uh, outside the wire that they would come on our base every once in a while for training or a meeting or something like that. Okay. So I'd recognize these guys. And one guy was from a different region of Iraq. 
and they brought him in. And he was like the biggest Iraqi I've ever met in my life. He was like seven foot tall, huge. And again, Arabic is weird. Arabic can change country to country, neighborhood to neighborhood, street to street sometimes, you know. And I come in out of the shower. I have my rifle with me. Everybody, all Marines, we shower with our rifles. We clean them before we clean us. So all I got is my little silkies on, my flip-flops, and an empty rifle. And I'm walking out, and this big guy pops out of the corner, and he blocks me in, all right? He blocks me in in this little shower thing, and he's like, hey, Yusuf, what's up, brother? And obviously, he's speaking Arabic. And he's like, hey, man, that thing you did for us the other day, that was awesome. I just wanted to tell you, you're, you're, you're like, to me, man, you're just like a flower. And I was like, uh, okay, where's this situation <laughs> going? And he's standing in the blocking the door. I'm like, yeah, okay, bro. And he's like, no, no, you don't get it, man. Look at me, bro. I need you to know that you're a flower to me. And he's just blocking the door. I'm like, am I about to get, what is about to get happen here? I'm about to butt stroke this guy. And I kind of duck under him. I'm like, all right, cool, bro. And I, I'm, I'm out of there. And <laughs> long story short, I'm like, wow, that was really weird. I don't know what happened there. I went to talk to the translators. They had their own hooch. And I walked in, they're all Iraqi guys. I'm like, hey, man, y'all need to watch out for this guy. Let me tell you what happened. And I tell him what happened. And this whole hooch of these translators, they all just die laughing. They're crying laughing. They're like, hey, he was from Haditha, right? I'm like, yeah, how'd you know that? And they're like, dude, to them, saying you're a flower is like saying you're a good dude. Like you're you're the bee's knees. And I took that as an overt sexual kind of overture. <laughs> And I was like, really? Because I almost just wrecked that guy and they were just dying laughing. So that's how a group of Iraqi uh, translators know me. That, that That's my heroism they know me for over there in Iraq. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny because even being English, you know, the, the word fag is not derogatory yeah, at all. Yeah. It means cigarette. You know, obviously that could be completely misinterpreted with uh, <laughs> the wrong understanding. Try that one around here nowadays. <laughs> yeah. Not going to work out for you. <laughs> well, conversely, a question that I like to ask anyone that was kind of deployed and you know, saw combat is, we always have this polarizing view of war for anyone, any one of us, myself included, that's not in that arena. So you either have the very pro-war, you know, and I say this all the time, you know, kill them all, let God sort them out mentality, or you have the very anti-war, they're a bunch of baby killers. And the reality is, is it over and over and over again, I hear from the men and women on the ground that when they get there, regardless of whatever politics has put them into that country, they start seeing things and they understand that there are there are horrendous people that need to be removed from this earth. So did you have any of those? Obviously, you you know, you were a QAE child watching the invasion of your country. But when you were actually deployed as a Marine, did you have any of those aha moments yourself? So, oh, good Lord, James, we could go down a real big rabbit hole here. Let's and, do it. <laughs> yeah, this is kind of a can of worms. And I'll just I'll state this as my opinion as a, as a, you know, private citizen, you know, I'm sure people will flame out on me, you know, war happens when we fail that diplomacy, you know, so people point fingers at the tactics of the military or, or what they're doing or, you know, that war is what happens when we fail at diplomacy. So point the finger right back at yourself on that one in, in terms of political realities on the ground. I'm going to just talk about this, James. Let's talk about moral ambiguity. All right. We see a lot of that on the ground. What I mean by that is you have often come across a different culture in this world and looked at something they did. And you said, oh, that's a strange thing. My culture, my people, we would never do a thing like that. And you go, yeah, you know, but that's part of their culture. No harm, no foul. That's not hurting anybody. You know, no big deal. Where I have a problem, James, James is when there's no 
you know, female mutilation, female genital mutilation, horrible concept. All right. When people get morally ambiguous about that, that specific situation, that's a problem. I don't care how lovey dovey or, you know, rubbing unicorns you're trying to be that never flies that I don't care what culture or what citizenry you're from Afghanistan. I never deployed to Afghanistan myself, but let's say you might have to go on a patrol and let's say your mission is to develop relations with uh, a local governor in this region. That is your mission. You have to do it. Everyone's watching you and your career is based on, you know, making this mission happen. And you go in there and you notice um, while you're having this meeting, you'll notice that uh, the individual you're trying to suck up to, he keeps a child bride right next to him, seven years old. And it's a boy too. It's not even a girl. It's a child bride, seven years old. And you got to sit there and figure that situation out. God forbid you don't come back with good rapport and good relations with that person. What the hell do you do with that, James? As a, as a red-blooded human being, what are you supposed to, how do you rationalize that? How do you get past that and keep going? That kind of moral ambiguity really hurts me. And why I'm bringing all this stuff up is most people have no idea, you know, the things that are happening on the ground and that the, the military nowadays has to deal with. You know, military back in the day in conventional wars, the, you know, you hand them a rifle. You, you've seen that movie, you know, one man gets a gun, the other one gets the bullets and the third man gets nothing. If they die, you know, pick his gun up. That's a big, full on conventional war. The nature of warfare has changed in that you know, the threat from block to block to street to street to neighborhood could be a completely different situation. I could be fighting a full on gunfight on this part of the block. And three, three blocks later, I have to, you know, uh, do, you know, build a well and fix a school, you know, while they're both happening. We're, this platoon's getting shot at over here. This one's over here painting a school, you know, so it's hard to come to grips with that reality. And if you've never seen it, People you tell that stuff to, James, they go, no, that's not happening. No, our military is not aware of, you know, child rapists. You know, we would never work with people like that. Well, you know, if you if you still believe that, I got a bridge in Arizona, sell you. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. And that's that's beautiful. Thank you so much, because this is what I want to do. I'm not a member of the military and you know, I'm, I'm a firefighter and I'm, I'm originally from England. So I've got some different lenses, but definitely not a military lens. And I hear this over and over and over again, you know, special needs children chained to a garden and again it's, i'm not saying that we don't do this in england in america we have horrible people in all of our yes. countries so we're not painting the country and it's just that and so i'm talking you know to you and you're from you know the middle east originally the other side of the story i always hear is you have these shit bags that are doing these horrendous things and then the other you know 90 whatever percent of the country are men and women trying to raise their kids put a roof over their head and their food in their stomach exactly exactly like to this, uh, think about this, uh, James. Like to this day, um, it, it was on the Bill and Gates, uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I know they're in the news, and um, people have a lot of opinion, opinions about Bill Gates. But one of their initiatives they started a couple years back is he found out that there was a huge mortality rate in Africa from people uh, dying of drinking water, getting dysentery from bad drinking water, and the death rate in globally is through the roof. Today, in 2020, about to jump into 2021, you can look at our Western news media and see all these manufactured crises that, you know, that were burning the, the, the bridges down over. And there's still people in this globe that don't have clean drinking water and they're dying from it. <laughs> you know, that is the biggest, hugest disconnect I've, I've ever seen in my life, you know. Yeah. Well, and the same, even looking at the Western world, one of the things that's been infuriating for me is 
the other side of the equation for what we're going through at the moment is the resilience of the human being. But there's been no discussion on obesity, diabetes, you know, the, the addiction epidemic, any of these things. So to say that it's because we care about lives, I find a complete insult. Because if you did, as you said, we'd be addressing all the things that are killing human beings. Absolutely. You know, it, all these people, I don't think they're bad people. I don't think they're evil. I think they're caught. They're getting caught up and looking some, for something to do because maybe something isn't being fulfilled in their life. And and. They are filled with great intentions on both sides of the spectrum, both sides that they're filled with great intentions. And if you look back in history, you know, history is painted with the blood of good intentions. If you don't have forethought and think about these things, I'm a, James, since you mentioned firemen, let me give you this one. This is one I'm dealing with right here in California. I, I teach a lot of fire, too. Um, there's an active criminal physical threat here in California against our firemen. I'm not going to say this town's name. But we all know Narcan, right? It's the, and for your listeners, if they don't know, it's what you, you know, shove up their nose when they're having an OD and it wakes them right back up. It flushes their system and boom, they're ready to go. And you have this fireman tell me where he took a rookie out. The rookie's never been out and he, the fireman takes him out. They show up to this guy. He's a big guy. He's obviously in the middle of an OD and um, they, they, they're stripping him up naked and they find uh, a wad of money, about $10,000 in cash. And they found about a golf ball size um, ball of heroin, black tar heroin. The senior guy picks all that stuff, puts it up in the clothes and puts it in the corner. And he starts treating the guy, gives him the Narcan. The guy starts waking up and the rookie looks at him, and goes, hey, man, what are you going to do with that dope? You know, uh, the, uh, the cops are here. Should I give it to them? And he goes, no, no, no. Give it back to the guy. And the guy's waking up, coming out of his OD. And he's telling the guy, hey, man, your money and your dope are right here. Look, you see it? They're right here. And he gives it back to him. The guy goes on his way. And the rookie's just dumbfounded. And he's going, dude, you just gave that guy heroin and cat. Like, what the hell? He goes, yeah, you have to, man, because if we don't, they get green light by the gangs in the area. If you take their Narcan, they wake up and, and it gets given to evidence. They find your name and they'll get a green light so they can attack you. So much so that this town, I won't say the name again, sometimes they'll, the firemen will go down and go, hey, take your name tapes off, guys. When you're coming in, don't wear your uniform to work. Don't wear it away and make sure when you're working, don't have your name tapes on. What the hell kind of world do we live in where that makes sense? Absolutely. Well, it's, it's probably close to where I used to work because I know that was, <laughs> the gang, yeah, the gang sure. activity was is was horrendous around there. Um, well, speaking of that, another tangent, and you know, there's a few a few subjects that I really do love to bring to anyone that's kind of pertinent to because you know the reverse engineering of issues I think is so important to to undo some of the damage that we're seeing over and over again. And I've had some incredible people on here. I've, I've seen firsthand in places like uh, Portugal where drugs have been decriminalized. And I'm always very, very clear. We're talking about addicts. We're not talking about smugglers or dealers or, you know, any of those shitbags. But, um, to, and, and then what they've done there is they basically cut the head off the snake. They've taken the power away from the underworld and they've put it into the hands of the medical world. And that those people are funneled into addiction programs, you know, obviously rehabilitation, job creation. And, you know, amazing results with the work that you've done, not loading the question through through your own lens. What is the impact of the, you know, illegal drug trade on terrorism, on the violence that you've seen on the civilian side? Well, um, I mean, for, for one thing, it's all tied. You mentioned terrorism, you know, 
You go to Afghanistan, the, the heroin trade there, that's what funds everything there. That heroin's going directly to us. It doesn't matter what the drug is, cocaine, meth, heroin, whatever it is, bath salts, America being the number one consumer, West being the number one consumer. It was an interesting thing back in the day when you had um, Afghanistan, you had like drug smugglers and then you had like insurgents, guys who were there to fight people like the Soviets and the Americans. And each one of them had their uh, a route, right? So you're like, all right, drug smug smugglers got their route. These guys got their route. Well, guess what? If you overlaid those routes over like 20, 30 years, they're the exact same route. They're bringing drugs in the same way they're moving munitions and weapons, all right? That same thing applies over here. You mentioned decriminalization, James, and taking power away from the 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 uh, black market, the criminal, and giving it to the medical industry. I love that idea. It's a fantastic idea. Treat it, you know, like uh, you know, a drug and whatnot. If that's what's happening, if that's what's ha are we really taking the power away? Because again, I'm not going to base. This is just my opinion. What I see here in certain states where, you know, marijuana decriminalization, where you don't have a complete separation, like, oh, this is a legit one. Uh, you might on the face of it or a couple layers in front, the, the legit side, it might look good, but I don't know. Sometimes if you dig a little bit deeper, I sometimes wonder if there's more nefarious infrastructure masquerading as the medical industry, if that makes sense. No, it does. And I think for this one, it's more about the focus of getting people off completely. But I think one thing I've heard, like with Ed, Ed Calderon came on, yeah. you know, the piecemealing, if you just legalize marijuana, what he sees now in, in, uh, um, in Mexico, I think it was, if I've got this right, it's now opium fields, you know? So every mm -hmm. time we're you're just legalizing one, well, they're just gonna, you know, um, jump to the next one. Yeah, exactly. Yep. A lateral move. Whereas with this, it was a blanket, all drugs. So there was nothing left for, you know, the illicit ones to mm, break, but their, their goal wasn't yeah. to have dispensaries of all these things. It was to, cause it's decriminalized. So they're not, they're not, you know, selling weed in every corner. Um, they're just stopping. When, when these addicts are, are stopped, they're not shuffled through the criminal system, they're shuttled through the medical system. So that yeah. was a difference, whereas Switzerland is actually legalized. But both those countries have had incredible results with that. But what we're seeing here, I think, is a very piecemeal way, the same way as the Obama administration called it, you know, their their version of social, you know, medicine was horrendous. Mm -hmm. It was piecemeal. It was mm -hmm. nothing like the NHS from England, for example. Good intentions, James. Good there we intentions. Go. <laughs> yep. Beautiful. And, and 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 here's my and just to give you one more example, here's my this is why I'm kind of paranoid about it. I've been on the ground with Border Patrol agents in this country. You know, this happened to me. I didn't hear the story. This got told right to me. There's certain corridors where they have smuggling happening, but these organizations, James, are getting so high speed. They're they're incorporating a lot of technology. They're almost they're like little city states in that they've acquired so much money. Let's say I have a corridor, you know, that that gets my dope from one part of the, this country to that country. Normally, we do all the sneaky things like anti-tracking and, and running at night and masking our, our drug movements to to um, not get caught by the Border Patrol, right? Well, now they've, they've acquired so many resources that they'll find a corridor, let's say, on the Texas border, Texas-Mexico uh, border, and they'll find, like, I don't know, Greenpeace, and they'll go find some, like, you know— butt-faced winged titsy fly in that corridor and they'll go to Greenpeace and they'll go, hey, this thing's about to become extinct and they'll lobby them. They'll lobby them, lobby, they'll throw money at and they'll lobby it at the highest level and they'll get this dumb titsy fly to get put on an endangered list. What did you just do to 
that entire corridor, James. All the resources we've ever thrown at, all the Border Patrol, everyone trying to catch those bad guys, we just null and voided everything with a court order. That corridor right now is wide open. And I'm, I'm not making an example. I'm saying it's physically wide open. There's dope coming through 24 hours a day right now on our borders. Yeah. What do you do with that? You know? Yeah. And well, I think that's it. That's why we have to go back to basic economics, supply and demand. You cut the demand. You don't cut the, the supply. You see what I mean? So when if, if you if you do decriminalize, if you put it where, you know, it's back in, in the hands of, of the, the people, as it were, and, and you work on the mental health, which is the underlying issue with most addiction, then that then they can they can be as inventive as they want but to me i mean it's, i'm sure i'm oversimplifying it but but the basic level it seems like if there isn't a demand and as you said we are such a huge consumer of illicit drugs then you can affect it that way but i mean portugal and, and switzerland i mean they've they, they've they've shown a blueprint is it apples to apples of course not but is it something that we could build our own version of i think i think so especially when you look at how prohibition was started it was started on the absolute failure of alcohol prohibition so we'd had a test case and then they jumped on it anyway yeah and, and i've talked to multiple cops and they'll tell you the you know you bring up the war on drugs you know the war on it's not winnable this is what i'm what i heard from cops it's not winnable. All we got to do, all we can do is keep a lid on it, you know? But if you, you know, if you just let go of that lid, it's Pandora's box. Exactly. You know? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, I know that from um, getting back to your kind of career path, um, you transition into teaching the Marine Combat Hunter program. So, so tell me about that and then kind of how that started steering you towards what you're doing now. Yeah, it's, um, so I just, I'm full of stories for you, James, man. Well, so I ended up, <laughs> I, I ended up getting out of the Marine Corps, did my four years, three deployments, and I got out, you know, time to go be a civilian again. Well, the Marine Corps had different ideas because about a year and a half later of, of enjoying my time as being a civilian, they sent me uh, uh, original orders with a, uh, and a FedEx and a plane ticket, stuck it in my door, said, get your ass back to the Marine Corps. I was involuntary recalled. Um, so that was tons of fun. But it turned out that at the time they just they didn't care what you did. You you were involuntary recall. You had to come back to Mother Marine Corps, but they didn't care what you did. You could join recruiting duty. You could join uh, reserve unit. You could go active duty. Whatever it is, they just needed help. It was the, during the surge, and my buddy had called me and told me about this small little unit that was standing up called Combat Hunter. No one had ever heard of. And he got me to join in and I didn't know anything about it. He just said, Hey, we travel a lot and they pay you a whole bunch of per diem. I was like, score, I'll do it. So I jumped in and that's uh, started a very interesting journey where I learned those situational awareness skills and started teaching them. Uh, I spent a total of about 10 years there. I, I'm the old man of the Marine Corps, the longest standing member. Cause I did about four years there as a Marine and I went to get out again this time. And they said, hey, you want a job? And so they gave me a plaque and we did my hail and bail on a Friday. And I came back Monday with, you know, a, a polo shirt on as a contractor. So I finished I did another six years there as a chief instructor. Beautiful. Well, then from, from the military lens first, what was some of the just the principles that you were bringing to to the military once that program was started? up? Yeah. So to to to. Put it to put this in a correct box. I would say we were operating in a reactive mode when we were out there as the Marine Corps, as the infantry on the ground, even the Army, Air Force, everybody on the ground. We were in reactive mode. It wasn't our fault. We'd never really seen a different way of doing things. We stand around, we patrol, 
and we'd wait for an IED action, an ambush action, a sniper attack. And that's when we jump up and we'd, you know, go to war. And Marines were really good at getting in fights and finishing fights. We're really good at that. But, you know, for that to happen, someone has to start shooting at you. And that's when you realize real quick, like, wow, this isn't Call of Duty and this kind of sucks. Uh, so how do I avoid this in the future? So we basically were dealing with threats on the ground where you had a, a big, huge civilian population and the bad guys were taking their shots and, and, and sinking in back to the civilian population. So no more conventional war. We had to get smarter. And necessity is a mother of invention. So we developed uh, the Combat Hunter program. General Mattis, actually, at the time, he's the one who, who developed it. He brought in a bunch of experts and said, look, we have to be more situationally aware of specific behaviors and settings happening around us to disrupt violence. All right. We want to stop violence before it happens. You're walking around in life all day, every day, and there's tons of information flying around your head at any given moment. And the sad truth is 99% of the population is completely oblivious to it. So if I can take you and I can make you a student of human behavior, all you got to do is find one of these pre-event indicators, what we call left of bang before that bad incident. And all you got to do is find one of them and pull on that string. If you pull on that string long enough, bang, that bad event, the shooting, the bad thing doesn't happen. And that's a much smarter way to do business. So that's what the Combat Hunter program was to instill a situational aware and a proactive mindset in our forces. We're basically building tactical cunning with every person we trained. Beautiful. Well, obviously, we're, you know, I want to explore the the civilian arena and law enforcement. Um, so the first word that obviously triggers, I hate that word, but I mean, it does um, people a lot is the word profiling. And I had uh, Tim Kennedy on, I think our most recent uh, interview, he talked about, you know, there's this criminal profiling, and then there's racial profiling. So through your lens, you know, how, what is profiling from a law enforcement or civilian um uh, lens where it is helpful. It's not. It's not a you know a, um, a racial profiling or anything. But what kind of profiling do you teach and, and and explain the difference? Yeah, good question, James. I honestly don't even. I try not to use the word profiling. It comes out every once in a while. It's, it's the dreaded P word. So what we have done uh, is take a perfectly good word, good good concept, and we've added components to it. So. Profiling is a perfectly viable option to scan your surroundings, to do criminal profiling, to look out for impending threat. But what we've done is we add racial profiling to that component. Racial profiling, think about it, James. Racial profiling on its face is stupid. It doesn't work, especially in the lens of like think about terrorism or enemies of the West, ISIS and whatnot. Are there, you know, people in ISIS, they're just Arabs that are brown skinned with beards and long dresses? Is that what ISIS is made up of? No, I mean, are there them? Yeah, they, they exist, but are there blonde-haired, blue-eyed people from the Netherlands in ISIS right now? Absolutely. So when you do racial profiling like that, you're putting on a lens, you're putting on blinders, you know what I mean? You're, you're leaving out critical information. Profiling, behavioral profiling, is I don't care what you look like, but if you show me the behaviors and the patterns and indicators of some type of impending threat, hey, guess what, brother? You got my full attention. You know, player two has entered the field. I don't care what you look like. So, yeah, let's can racial profiling. It doesn't work on its face of it, you know, but behavioral profiling, situational profiling absolutely works. Yeah. Well, I remember, you know, growing up um, in England, you know, we had the skinheads. 
and they were you know that there was there was the the punk music around there and they they were often some of the more extreme hooliganism we saw in the the football mm-hmm. stadiums was was from that group as well so when you walk down the street and you saw someone with dms you know halfway up to their knees and tight jeans and a bomber jacket and a shaved head you know that's not racial probably not oh there's a white guy you know those white guys always you know rape and murder mm-hmm. people no it's because yep. of the way they look and that's what i kind of exactly. get with some of this pushback is yeah if you're you know if you're looking for someone who's just robbed a bank and you see a guy with a hoodie and you know there was a hoodie it doesn't matter what color or creed they are but if they match the person that you're looking for you're obviously going to approach that person to to eliminate them from your search yeah. And, and I'll even go one step further. You know, you're responding to a bank robbery. You turn the corner. He's already pulled off his mask and he's in the crowd. And then you start scanning the crowd in front of the bank and all these people going about their business, playing by the rules. And you have one individual that's red in the face, their chest is heaving and they're sweating. Again, there's my player two has entered the field. I'm going to go run over there and grab you. And if you're the wrong guy, it's it's like, you know, the the universe's cosmic joke on you that day. <laughs> Sorry, you know. Yeah, well, exactly. Well, I know, you you know, you talk about, let's start with the civilian lens. And so as as a young man, I was very small. I'm still very small, but, you know, I, I was never um, the kind of person where if it kicked off, I'd probably come out unscathed and it was quite the opposite. So I, I look back now and, and think that I did do a lot of situational awareness. I did have times where I saw in a nightclub someone was eyeballing me and I was like, well, screw it. It's not worth it. And I just, I would go home for the day. Um, you know, so what are some of the, the situational awareness, um, uh, principles that you teach from a civilian point of view we're not expected to be jumped we're not carrying a sidearm you know so so what are some of those for the average joe yeah and, and it's funny james what i teach my training you ask me hey what's a civilian lens i teach the same stuff to civilians to cops to special forces and everybody in between the verbiage all stays the same now your actions depending on your setting and context that'll change obviously but as for the verbiage i'll, I'll just start with baselines and anomalies whether you're a law enforcement cop, whatever, or civilian, you should always be walking around establishing behavioral baselines. Everything you get into in life, everything has a baseline. It doesn't matter if it's a person to place a thing or shoe. It has some type of baseline. What should be? And you need to become a student of what that is. And once you, let's say you walk into a Starbucks and you establish a baseline on it, people standing in line, drinking coffee, typing on their computer, it's not like you're done. Once you go back to that that uh, Starbucks the next day, you got to reestablish a baseline. Hey, does everything match like it did last time? Because if you don't establish these baselines, these behavioral baselines, you're never going to see that anomaly coming. And that's what I talk about when I'm building in tactical cunning in people. I'm building in proactivity. I'm building in a bias for action when you see something weird come up on your on your baseline. All right. So an anomaly could be something overt, like someone pulling something from their waistband or or you know puffing their chest out about to throw a punch. Yeah, that's an anomaly. We definitely want to look at that. But some of those are kind of low-hanging fruit. I want to educate people on the even more subtle versions of these indicators. So I want to I'm going to make you situationally aware by teaching you what situational awareness looks like, for example. Um, have you ever walked into James? Have you ever walked into like a, a building and looked up and started scanning for cameras? Oh yeah. Done that? Well, as a fireman, wow. I'm, I'm looking at roof construction, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. You're not a criminal, are you? You're not a thief, right? No, I'm just a weirdo. But you're, yeah, no, you're not. You're aware of your surroundings. You're aware of the cameras. You're aware of the exits based on your life experience as a fireman. Yeah. See what I mean? Here's the thing, James. 99% of the population is not doing that, right? 
No, most of us are just walking around stuck in our phone. So the baseline is completely oblivious. So if I go to a mall or I go to some uh, a location and I have someone scanning for cameras or someone who's overtly aware of their background, someone keeps looking behind them, checking their six, you know, any of those things, someone who walks into a restaurant, walks all the way by a bunch of empty tables and puts her back up against a wall. All of them are indicators of situational awareness. And at this point, James, I don't know if you're good or bad because there's only two types of people we care about, the good and the bad. They're the only ones that exhibit it. So at this point, all I know is we got to play around the field and I got to do a little bit more sustained observation to to see if you're nefarious or you're going to do something. So that's just one of the simple examples looking for situational awareness. Yeah, absolutely. And now what about com- the the complete opposite? So that's it's a good person, but you see a lot of our profession, especially that have been on for a while, that almost get it seems like over hypervigilance. So that they're too worried about the room and they can never calm down. Like well, how do they find that middle ground? Yep. What I how I address this is when you have paranoia, when you're when you're looking for threats behind everything, that that that's a training scar. No one has ever trained you to think of it different. We default to that of being paranoid, looking for those threats all over the place. And Murphy's Law will tell you, if you walk around all day, every day, you think you're keeping your family safe, you you think you're being observant, Murphy's Law will tell you, you will burn out right when you need to be paying attention. Think about... There's a whole brain component we do, James, and you need to think about your brain like this. Let's say when you wake up in the morning, you get gifted $100 of attention currency. That's what you get. When you're out of it, you're out of it. That's it for the day. So if you go around spending that cash by 10 o'clock, that's it. You're out of attention currency, and hopefully nothing else shows up that you have to pay attention to. So instead of spending all my energy everywhere, like looking for these threats, I'm going to teach you what to look for to 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 focus your attention. So instead of like I walk in and I'm scanning a whole bunch of like a crowd of 400 people, trying to find a bad guy in a crowd of 400 people is a needle in a haystack. All right. So it, let's reverse it. Instead of looking for that needle in a haystack, I'm going to teach you specific behavioral indicators to burn down your haystack to make that haystack much smaller. So now I'm scanning that crowd of 400 people. Ask yourself simple questions like, all right, what are the rules to the setting? What are the rules to the setting in the context? Who's playing by the rules, which will be 99% of the population. Now, who's not playing by the rules? Who's not, you know, doing what they're supposed to? And again, these could be innocuous. You know, if I rolled into an Iraqi town when I was in the Marine Corps, and let's say every time I rolled into this village, these people hated my guts. They would look at me, they'd, you know, uh, throw rocks at me, kids would hate us. And let's say they do that every time I go in there, James. Do I have a baseline on that town? Yeah, it's a negative yeah. one, but you have a baseline. Yeah, it's a negative one. They don't like Marines. They don't like Americans. But it's a but it's a baseline. Uh, it's a negative one, but whatever. It's a free country. I'm not. I'm, it's not a popularity contest. So what happens when I walk in the next time, James? Like after three months of going to this place, and everyone's doing their thing, throwing their rocks at me, and I got one guy in the back smiling at me, waving his hand. Big red. Do we flag. have a problem? Yeah. Yeah, what's your problem? Come here, chucklehead. You know, why aren't you <laughs> playing by the rules? I'm not going to run over there and like, you know, Goldberg and tackle him, but I'm going to go tap him on the shoulder with a smile on my face and go, what's up, brother? How you doing? Now we have a little little bit of string in that big crowd of 400 people. We have a little bit of string I can pull on and, and um, pay attention to what you need to. Right. Well, with that being said, like you said, initially you, you've spotted an anomaly in a crowd, but you're not sure if it's just 
you know, a good guy with the same kind of mannerisms or someone who's a threat? What are some of the, the go-to kind of uh, yeah, things to look for to try and differentiate between the two? Yeah, so I want to talk about decision-making real quick, James. So I can fill your head full of indicators, and, and I'll definitely do some more. But the more important thing is to think about when this thing happens, what am I going to do, all right? So not only what specific indicators, but what am I going to do if it happens? And you can't think, you can't possibly think of anything that could happen, right? But within a given setting, you want to narrow it down. Look, I'm, 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 I'm crossing a border patrol checkpoint. What am I worried about here? There's only a specific amount of threats that are going to hit you on a border patrol checkpoint. You know what I mean? Uh, a mall, you know, so think about those before you get there and come up with a decision. When you come up with a decision, try to keep them grouped in threes, all right? Why am I saying this? Because your brain does a lot of goofy stuff that can help you, and it does a lot of dumb stuff that can hurt you. And so if you're trying to come up with nine different things in the middle of a fight, your brain cannot recall that amount of information. In times of stress, when the fight's on, you can only recall about three or four things at a given moment. So if I'm trying to teach you to, like, you know, counter to a rear hand punch, and I'm teaching you step 10, you're not going to remember any of that crap in the middle of a fight or when gunshots. So come up with, you know, look at your situation, come up with three or four plausible things that could, you know, happen security wise, and then come up with three decisions that you're going to perform. Uh, you don't have to be exact, but that will keep you way ahead of the power curve when it comes to decision making time during threats. Right. And then I'm assuming just like with the fire service, with law enforcement, you know, for us, the good departments have done a lot of what if training and it may never happen. Yes. I just hope it doesn't, but they've drilled it and they've, they've got that muscle memory. So you've got that decision making, but I'm assuming there still needs to be a reliant on you know, motor skills to back that up. Absolutely. Well, you said, what if, what if drills? Definitely motor skills. We want to teach that good muscle memory. When I mentioned before, James, when I said, yeah, in the Marine Corps, we're, we were really reactionary. I mean, reactionary is not necessarily a bad thing. We have to know how to react to these bad events, to react to a shooting, to, you know, a, a bleed victim and so on and so forth. You got to know how to react to things. You're not going to be able to predict everything, but don't just be stuck in react mode. Come, come up with, you know, a plan with defense in depth. Yeah, well, transitioning to the the law enforcement lens for a moment. So, you know, we've had a, a gamut of of uh, law enforcement stories. You know, these these anomalies that are definitely, you know, in my opinion, blatant disregard for the profession. I mean, I think the George Floyd people argue that it was still justified. I don't think so as a responder. I don't think that the the medics that showed up did a good job either. You know, so I mean, I think kneeling on a guy till he dies whether he's on drugs or whatever is still you know you're not doing what the badge is supposed to do however there are so many others where it was completely justified and people try and paint it like a, a racial racially mo motivated killing or whatever when the reality was someone was running at them with a knife um what are some of the common denominators that you're seeing in law enforcement to start with 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 you know mistakes that you seem to see over and over again and what are some of the things that that through the law enforcement lens specifically that that you you teach for them to 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 be more aware and better trained on that element yeah so i've never been a cop in my life james uh i'm not going to teach cops anything really that's going to blow their hair back in that they're already doing the stuff that I, I'm talking about, James. They already do it every day. They're better profilers than I'll ever be. But what happens, let, let me give you an example. Every time I teach cops, and I teach a lot of them, 
inevitably on my first break, it'll it's always the old timer that walks up to me and will be like, hey, man, I've been doing what you just talked about for like 20 years. I just never knew it had a name. And I go, yeah, absolutely. There's a name. There's research behind it. So I'm not even going to say it's a mistake. But oftentimes you'll see in law enforcement, a lot of the a lot of the training is OJT on the job training. And that will depend heavily on who your field training officer is, what their background is. So when when I used to hear as a young Marine, hey, keep your head on a swivel. Hey, complacency kills. It's like we have all these taglines, see something, say something. But what the hell does that mean to you, to me, to to all of us? So we have to have some way to standardize this verbiage. So that's what I would say. Get this into the academies. Get this into the academies where we're all articulating these things in the same manner. You know, when a cop goes, you know, when a cop has a hunch, he has that gut feeling and he's right and he gets in front of a judge and they go, hey, why'd you, you know, take this guy down? Oh, I had a gut feeling. You're not giving the judge much to work with there. A gut feeling. This is why you, you know, initiated this law enforcement act as a gut feeling. And you were right. That's a sad thing. That that cop was completely right. But if I can give you the verbiage, hey, your honor, his kinesics, his nonverbals were telling me this. I had, you know, padding, checking, uh, chest heaving, this, that, and the other. I believed it to be, you know, an eminent threat based off his body language and nonverbals based off this training. Now we're getting somewhere. Now we're getting to a point where you can articulate this information to, you know, a judge or our civilians too. the other direction, James. We have oftentimes have our civilians that they have a bad gut feeling these survival mechanisms are hardwired. They see when bad stuff is happening, but they don't know what to do or who to talk to or if they should even act. So if we can get our civilian population speaking the same verbiage of situational awareness, they can have a situation where they walk up and like Israel. I saw this video in Israel one time, um, James, and it was a cop sitting in his car. The cop's like eating a sandwich and he's sitting outside of a mall in Israel and a complete civilian walks right up to him and goes, hey, sir, I think that guy has a suicide bomb. And he was right. He had to tell them the cop like fumbling to get his gun out. And um, the suicide bomber ended up going off. But this was a complete civilian who told the cop this was a suicide bomber. Whatever, whatever they're putting in the water, whatever they're doing to make that happen, the Western culture, uh, Britain, America, we need some of that. Yeah. Well, do you think that's, uh, again, because the – you know, the Israeli people are conditioned because of the troubles they've had, you know, that the, they are uh, kind of walking around at a slightly heightened sense anyway. Yes. I, there's a reason I, no one's booking me in Israel, James. They don't, they don't <laughs> need my training because they're teaching their kids my training when they're three, four years old, you know, and I, I witnessed this in Kuwait. This was happened to me. So when someone said it to me, I, I laughed out loud in Kuwait. They mined Kuwait too. So Iraqis had mined everything. There was all this ordinance. A year after the invasion was over, there were bomb. I remember sitting in second grade and every hour or so you'd hear a bomb go off. And that was them disarming the, the mines. And that was completely normal. So we'd have EOD guys come in when I was a kid. And I remember like, hey, this is a mine. Here, this is a little, this is a, you know, a two-step mine. Don't touch this. They do the same thing in Israel when you're in two or third second grade, third grade, you know. Here in America, people freak out if they see a cop in their elementary school, you know. So, yeah, they don't need my training. Yeah, it's interesting. When I grew up, it was when the IRA was still bombing the mainland. And oh, uh, I was living right next to an MOD base. So we grew up, Ooh. you know, being scared of abandoned, you know, backpacks and even rubbish bins. So put a lot of bins in, uh, excuse me, a lot of bombs in the bins. Um, the other day I was at a hotel and someone had left a, a bag right by a, the, the elevator. So I'm sure it was an innocent mistake, but immediately I was like, all right, we need to tell someone about this. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting thought because I innately do it partly from the fire service, but probably also partly because of growing up when we were being bombed in the UK. Oh man, James, I don't even want to open this rabbit hole, but the, and again, obviously I didn't live it, but I'm a, I'm a kind of student of history. The, the similarities between what I dealt with in Iraq and the troubles in, in Ireland during the time, very similar tactics wise, how they were employing their tactics and IEDs. And there, there's a lot of lessons we learned from that time in, in your history that we applied directly to uh, the people on the ground. Yeah, very interesting. All right, well then, back so back to some of the the signs. I mean, I know we're talking about specifics now, but for the, you know, what are some of the the ways that you dis, uh, decide who that person that you've now focused on that's kind of uh, off the baseline is a threat or an ally? Yep. So hypothetically, let's say you're scanning that crowd, you picked up on that situational awareness, and now you've burned down your haystack and. Depending on what your role is in that situation, you know, a civilian might not walk up and contact that person. You know, you might just grab your family and if it's higher up on the anomaly, get them out of there. But let's say you want to make a contact and a contact is just smiling. You're not invading them. You're just saying, hey, how are you doing today to get a quick rapport going? So as you walk up to the person and you're talking to them, there's some things to look at biometrically. So if you're under fear or stress, there's they're like, there's like 28 different chemicals that get dumped in your body and they definitely have observable indicators. So as you're talking to this person, are they getting more comfortable or are they getting less comfortable? If you see um, uh, more discomfort is going to be associated with heaving of the chest. They're trying to over oxygenate their blood because they're maybe in a kind of f- uh, flight or free- freeze response. Sweating, uh, shaking, that's caused by adrenaline. Um, you ever heard, I'm, I'm sort of getting it right now, but when you get tacky, that little white stuff at the side of your mouth, you start losing a little bit of saliva. That's your limbic system kind of kicking in a fear response, and it really doesn't like the situation. So now we're pulling on the thread, and it gets even deeper than that. So not only did we identify situational awareness, we got a close, we got closer. They started me giving, giving more specific fear indicators. And then there's language pattern and actually how they're responding. Everyone wants to always want me to always teach them like the deception detection stuff and like lie spotting. And there's with lie spotting, there's good stuff out there, but there's a whole bunch of crap too. Lie spotting is kind of a misnomer. You're never going to, there's no such thing as a human lie detector. But there's some things that you might want to look for, like any type of touching above the neck, touching the nose, touching the ear. Uh, if I answer you, covering my mouth as I talk to you, pacifying behavior, rubbing the back of the neck, cleansing of the face, any type of siffy, uh, uh, ticky self-touch that's showing me you're nervous, that's making me feel worse and worse and worse about the situation. Does that make sense? No, it does. And you've used, I've read the term uh, pacifying behavior. So is that literally – what you would do to calm yourself down. So like you said, rubbing the neck or, you know, almost like it it feels good. So they're trying to deescalate their own reaction, their own emotion. That's exactly what they're doing, James. There is in at that. If I, if you turn the corner on a crowd and you see somebody conducting a pacifying behavior, I have no idea what's going on in that person's head. I don't know if they're a terrorist, they're going to explode or they're having diarrhea. All I know is there's some type of fear or threat happening in their brain. Um, So I have to do sustained observation. So, you have that fear or threat in there and you do something that your mom used to do. What happened when you got a little boo-boo on your knee, right, James? Mom used to come over and rub your back and kiss it. You're doing that autonomically. You don't even realize you're doing it and you're trying to calm yourself down. So again, 
if I have a crowd of a bunch of people doing their holiday shopping here at a mall and I got someone who's given me pacifying behaviors over and over again, I want to know why. I don't know. I want to know what's up. Might start to say a hello or if I'm so inclined to, you know, see what that situation tells you. Yeah. Well, I've, I know another area that you talk about in some of your, your training is workplace violence. Um, so when it's someone now that that you that you know, it's a colleague, for example, and it's so awful when you see you know events like this. Um, what are some of the areas that you focus on there? Because it's not a stranger anymore. It's someone that you're in the next cubicle with or the warehouse. Yep. So just like I said, I, I teach pretty much the same thing to special forces as I do to corporations, um, except instead of like with the military law enforcement, first responders, we're focusing out, outwardly. One, we can't control the baseline with where we work. You show up to a scene, James, you know, you it's chaos, you know. So you have no control over the baseline. You can only observe the baseline when we show up to these incidents. If someone working in a workplace, you control that baseline. You control the security infrastructure, the security guards and whatnot. So you can put things in place to control your baseline. And instead of looking externally outward threats, we're looking internally at, you know, let's say you're a manager and you have six employees in, uh, that you deal with. We're doing the same thing on them. We're establishing behavioral baselines and looking for anomalies. So if I know um, Dana comes in every day, smiling, laughing, very high volume, I can, you know, she's always making a joke. You can always hear uh, her down the, down the hall. I establish that baseline on her consciously every day. And then the one day that she doesn't match at, you're going to see that. It's going to be very overt. You're going to be like, you know what? I haven't heard, you know, um, you know, her laugh all day long. And you walk over and tap her on her shoulder and then long story short, you know, she's having a really, you know, bad domestic situation. Hypothetically, that happens. Maybe you just disrupted a, a active shooter event months in advance. You see what I mean? So with, with left to bang and threats, we're, we're trying to top, stop those threats that are impending right in front of our face. But you just tapping someone on the shoulder and go, hey, maybe take a half day off or lending a hand. That could have stopped that violent event three, four months later down the road. Yeah, well, something that struck me as well is is clearly the, the reason why you're being employed is so many of us have our head up our ass. And I think that <laughs> that applies, you know, to um, not just threats, but the the reverse, like someone else threatening their own, you know, their own life, the, the suicide, you know, depression, anxiety element. So it, not only if being more aware, are you going to make yourself safer, you're more likely to actually notice, as you said, Dana, maybe she didn't ever become a, a shooter. Maybe she just took her own life, you know, a week later yeah. in her apartment. Absolutely. So it seems like yeah. it's a win-win regardless, just being more aware of your situation and your fellow humans around you. A hundred percent, James. And it's not that I wouldn't call it that we have our head up our ass. A lot of people do. That's a lot of that syndrome happening, especially right now in 2020. But when it comes to awareness, not necessarily that. It's just no one has ever shown us, James. I was a guy who did the, the three really shitty combat tours, and then I got this training. That's when I learned all this whiz-bang stuff. And I was mad because this could have saved my friends. This could have brought people home alive, all right? And so it's not common sense, but it's not rocket science. It does take somebody to show you. It's like this, James, you've been walking around your whole life looking for a street address and you're in this town. You've never been in this town before and you can't find street signs anywhere till you stop at the ga gas station and the old creepy dude at the gas station. He lets you know, you're like, hey, man, I'm lost. I can't find any signs. And he goes, hey, man, in our town, we don't have a big budget. So our street signs are only like four inches off the ground. 
And then you look down and sure enough, there's all the street signs. You see them all now. And you're like, oh, crap, thanks, man. From that point on, when that old man took your head and said, look, are you ever going to need help again? Not in that town. So you get to the next that one town. where they hang hey, hey, perfect. <laughs> hey, perfect, James. Not in that town. Not in a place we've established a baseline for because now you know what to look for. So that's about, that's all I do. I didn't invent any of this stuff, James. This is all old, old stuff. I think we've just whipped so far into the technology realm. Like look at dating nowadays and Tinder and all this stuff. We're not We're not conversing with each other face to face. And the pandemic just makes it a thousand times worse because we're trying to teach our kids through Zoom. How's that working out? Yeah, you know, exactly. human, human beings need other human beings. You know, how do we learn? Think about when back in the caveman times, we didn't have books and DVDs and any of that stuff. Uh, you know, the, the hunting party would go out, they'd kill a buffalo or whatever. They'd bring it back. We didn't have the advent of the spoken word. You couldn't communicate it. So what'd we do? We, we, we put the deer skin on and we danced around the fire and we showed the rest of the tribe how we did it, how we killed the buffalo. That's what trained the next generation. You have a complete lack of that with a, with all this technology nowadays. So all I'm doing is busting the rust off these hardwired survival skills. Absolutely. Well, what is your take on on that sixth sense, that that gut feeling? Because to me, you know, a lot of the answers to the issues that I try and talk about again are reverse engineering. So what did you know our ancestors do, our, our grandparents, or you know, hundreds of years back? When when you look at all the th- you know the cases that you studied. Um, you know, how acute actually is that? How accurate has that been in a lot of the things that you've seen? Great question, James. That's a great question. So how do we treat the sixth sense? I'll tell you right now, James, is stop treating the sixth sense like it's some mystical thing, like it's manna from heaven, like it's magic. Just by the very name of us calling, oh, the sixth sense, it's mysterious. When in reality, it's not that mysterious. It's not this ether, this manna from nothing. Your brain is the most, most complicated, uh, fastest, efficient processing computer on the face of the universe, on the face of the globe. We still have not mapped out the entire brain. Our computer still can't even touch the ability for our brains to, you know, process things. All right. So you have a couple levels. You have the conscious and the unconscious. These hard, why, why you're standing here, James, we can all pat ourselves on the back because our ancestors were survivors. They listened to their gut feelings. Back in the day, if you didn't get listen to your gut feeling, you got ate by a freaking buffalo or a mountain lion. I don't know if buffaloes eat people, whatever, <laughs> you get it, you know. Um, so we were all survivors. We were the hard stock of human beings that survived because we listened to those mechanisms, you know. I'll give you an example why our peripheral vision is so attuned to movement. We really pick up on lateral movement because back in the day, if something moved, it could kill you. So that's why we've developed peripheral vision to really be attuned to seeing movement. So that's my biggest thing is stop treating it like magic, like it's something that you you got to be born with. These are hardwired uh, mechanisms. And I know that was kind of a rant, but I'm going to end it with this story too from a woman that I trained a couple years ago. She was from Guatemala. She had no special forces CIA background. She was from Guatemala and she worked in a bank here in California. I trained all these uh, bank people and she walks up to me and grabs me at the end of the class and doesn't walk up to ask me questions. She grabs me by the arm. She goes, I need to talk to you. And she's kind of tearing up and she's choked up. I'm like, Whoa, what did I say? Did I say something bad? You know? <laughs> and she goes, I grew up in Guatemala. She goes, I moved here when I was, you know, years back and I grew up in uh, poverty, not like 
we were, were, we were poor. I mean, like she was watching people get killed at four and five years old. That was her life that she thought death and murder was a normal part of life. So she developed this thing where she's always checking her six. She's like, I'm always looking over my shoulder. I'm always paranoid. And she's like, my kids make fun of me. Her kids are born here in America. And they're like, mom, you're always so sketchy. You're always kind of paranoid. And she developed kind of a, 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 um, this was kind of a bad habit for her. She didn't like doing it. So she was self-conscious of it. Fast forward to my class and she grabs me and this was impactful, man. I kind of got choked up too. She goes with everything you just told me, you just, we just done the, the bit about situation awareness. You, you've given me permission. You've shown me that, that I'm, I'm in the right. Everybody else is kind of crazy and you've given me permission to do what I'm doing. And that hit me like a ton of bricks giving, showing people that this stuff is real. It's not magic. And I'm going to give you permission to do something. If you see something that's, that's uh, freaking you out. Yeah, no, I love that. And, and again, the hypervigilance obviously is an issue in our professions where they can never come down. But I think, uh, again, one, one of the guests I had, I forget who it was, but was saying like, yeah, if you're, you know, if you're in the middle of a, a field in Iowa, then you can relax. <laughs> it's probably not going to yeah. be a sniper yeah. on a hillside, you know, three miles away trying to take you out. But yeah, if you're in a shopping mall, if you're in a movie theater, you know, and we've sadly we've seen attacks in in both those uh, environments, and then that's time to slide it up a little bit. Exactly. Brilliant. All right. Well, then, just just before we transition out of this, are there any kind of anecdotes that you you bring up during the, the classes that you teach, where it's a good example of? had you know there was some obvious signs that that weren't picked up and sadly you know or or some success stories where they were that that avoided uh issues um there's there's tons of them roger but i want to so i'll I'll do this for your law enforcement uh, crowd for law enforcement ems first responders listening i need you to think about how you're showing up to certain scenes like understanding that when you show up to some of these scenes, you're introducing weapon systems immediately because you have the weapon system that you're carrying. So you've already brought a gun into the situation. You really need to think about and reassess how you're showing up to some of these situations because some of them you got to go hardcore 100%, 110% right off the bat because of the nature of the chaos happening in front of you and all this talk of de-escalation. Yeah, de-escalation is not going to work when someone's coming at you with a knife. So if you got to show up like that, show up like that. We get that portion of it. But if you don't have to go there – don't give that off. You wouldn't believe how much people react off your body language and your non-verbals. And this is, I'll, I'll tell this to your crowd right now. I'm sure everyone is here has had a specific incident that's happened to them in their life where they're out a situation. They're dealing with a citizen. Maybe they got there and that citizen was freaking out because of the contact and they did their verbal judo and you got them to calm down. You're getting them to take the medication or the IV. Everything's going good. And then you got that one knucklehead in your unit that shows up. Everybody listening knows who I'm talking about. They show up and they come all puff their chest out hardcore, lifting up their pants like, hey, what's up, brother? What do you got? What do you got going on here? And they insert their ego and maybe they're just, you know, I've met guys that are great in a foxhole, awesome people in a combat zone, but they don't do good with human beings, you know? And one thing I've learned in, in life is human beings like people that like people, you know, and it doesn't have to be all the, you know, hug a thug and rub a rainbow, but you got to play the game. You got to build the rapport, you know, it'd be, it'd be good to get in there and build the rapport, set the presence of like, Hey, this is all good. We're not going to escalate this because sometimes personally we do a lot of damage to ourselves, um, in those situations. 
So when it comes to training, realistic training, we have some departments, we have some law enforcement, we have some military that do this, and we have a lot that don't. Uh, when it comes to simunition, I'm, I'm very hardcore about simunition or paint rounds or those paint tag, whatever you guys want to call them. If you're going to train, do it right. Does that stuff hurt? Absolutely it hurts, but it teaches you very good file folders. Uh, the biggest time you get in, get, get in trouble with these situations is when you fall into denial, James. And if you had good file folders, good experiences, especially with those paint rounds, that's great training. One example that I remember hearing, it was a, uh, it was a um, woman officer, and I believe it was in Colorado. She was showing up to a, a, a potential robbery in progress, home invasion robbery in progress. She pulls into the driveway, and the three, basically, it's like an OK Corral showdown. Three guys come out. And she gets out of the car staring at three dudes. Every one of them is armed with a pistol. And this gunfight goes down. The shooting begins. This is a gunfight that happens in about 15 feet of space. The gunshots are over. The smoke clears. We got three dead criminals and one uh, woman officer who's completely unscathed, standing there with an empty gun. And they interviewed her. And a lot of people were, like, speculating, like, oh, man, how did she do that? How did she survive? There was, like... I think in the article they mentioned like, oh, it was her, it was her motherly instinct trying to, you know, survive and get home to her kids. And look, that's pretty powerful stuff. And I'm not going to say it's not a component of it, but if you talk to the officer, she, she'd tell you what happened. She goes, oh, it's crazy. Two weeks ago, we had just wrapped up some munition training. She'd gone into one of the shoot houses. They had been doing the training. And again, if you've never been hit with these sim rounds, they will, they will, you know, at a certain distance, they will draw blood. And one of the scenarios where she walked in, there was a shooter in the scenario, and she started um, to engage him. He engaged her first. He won. He shot her in the chest. And she kind of dropped her gun. She's like, oh, oh man, you got me. Yeah, good one. You know, let's reset. And he starts uh, continuing shooting at her. He's shooting right into her chest going, keep fighting, keep fighting, keep fighting. Emptying this magazine at close range. She's all shot up. She's bleeding. And she's like, oh, my God, that was horrible. But she starts shooting again. And finally, when he when he hits, uh, hits him with a couple paintballs, he stops shooting. And they pull him all out. And what was the dig, big debrief point? Was keep fighting. You are, you are human beings are extremely resilient. You have so much fight in you, you have no idea. And take it seriously and keep fighting. And that's all she could remember in the gunfight was all she could remember was her instructor's voice yelling at her. She remembered the pain of keep fighting, keep fighting, keep fighting. So that's one very good way to take your training seriously when it comes to some of these life or death situations. Beautiful. Well, firstly, thank you. That's an incredibly powerful and pertinent story. And it kind of reminds me of I did uh, Tim Kennedy's sheepdog response. They came to town here and we did the two-day class and there was a, a weapons portion. And it was just that. I mean, I remember, I think it, I don't know if it was Tim himself or one of the other instructors, but I got stabbed and I was like, oh, you know, okay, ha ha ha, let's reset. And they kept stabbing me. And it's like, oh yep. shit, this is real. But yep. it was that. <laughs> just because you got stabbed doesn't mean you're dead. It just means you yep. got stabbed. So, yep. and the, you know, the reason I was doing that is I'm a complete, um, you know, I'm, I'm British. So I'm, I'm a white belt when it comes to weapons. I, I had an incident, which I'll, I'll kind of transition to in a minute that, got me into that training, got me to ultimately buy a pistol of my own. Um, but I wanted to learn the same way as I do in the fire service. I don't want, you know, uh, an online course. I want to, I want to bleed and sweat and, and be put through the, the, the grinder. So with that being said, with all the, you know, the, the mindset stuff that you do, how important is it not just to train, but to train under stress and as close to realism as you can? 
Oh yeah, hugely important. There was a study. Um, I can't, don't quote me on it, but J- Jim Geis, Jim Geis, he runs California Training Institute. He does a great section on this where I teach biometric indicators. That's one of our behavioral domains. We pick out those. He goes a step further and goes into what processes are happening and how they affect you in these life or death situations. So for example, you could take someone who is, let's say you got a physically fit person. This person's a marathon runner. Their heartbeat is like three a minute, you know, whatever it is, (laughs) they've been running marathons their whole life. They're just a physical specimen, vegetarian. And that's what they do. If they've never been conditioned and they've never been in a fight, I'll take them to a real street fight and put them in it, and I'll watch you gas them out in 20, 30 seconds. They'll be dead, heaving, bread-faced, because physical exertion and exercising is a different process when when life and death happens. Um, When we have a real limbic system response of fear, you realize there's like 28 different chemicals that get dumped in your body. Not one of those chemicals just does one thing. Like adrenaline, that's made up of uh, um, of per- uh, epinephrine and, per- and neuroepinephrine. One of them opens up your blood vessels, one of them closes up your blood vessels. So there's a lot of crazy stuff happening when you have a limbic system response. And if you've never operated at that RPM, at that level, you're going to fall back on bad training. Everybody thinks, oh, I'm going to rise to the occasion. Nope, absolutely not. You will fall back to the highest level of your training. And if the highest level of your training is bullshit and it's based on, you know, whatever, that's what you're going to do. That's what you're going to have to work with in a gunfight, you know. So doing things like training with pain, you know, pain retains. Pain is a very good teacher. When you were three or four years old and you saw flames coming out of the stove and you're like, oh, pretty colors, and you burn the crap out of yourself, you learned a very good file folder that day was, you know, flame equals pain. Uh, Don't, don't touch flames. Um, so training realistically like that is the only way to do it, you know? Beautiful. Well, I want to do one more area before we transition to talking about the training that you offer was safe. Um, with EDC. So the reason why I came from the UK, we were not anti-gun. We just didn't have them anymore, which is crazy when you think about post-World War II, how they managed to flush the country of all those weapons. It still Mm -hmm. blows my mind. It is, yeah. But uh, still, every once in a while, they still find a, you know, 2,000 pound bomb in your backyard. They do. They do. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I I had been shooting. I was on a farm, so I had shotguns um, growing up. But when I moved to the US, very long story short, I got involved in a, a code red at my son's school. We were locked in and I realized just how vulnerable they were. So it wasn't about me protecting me. It was when I realized that I could protect other people. Um, you know, that, that was kind of the aha moment for me. So now, you know, I have a pistol and I do, you know, take it with me and, you know, I have tourniquets in the car and all these other things that I have as, as close to me as I can. What do you recommend to people here in the U.S., for example, um, as an EDC? Because you're in that mold. There is a threat now. I mean, obviously, the goal is not to run towards them, you know, guns blazing. But what are some of the suggestions you make to the civilians out there as far as, as, you know, weapons and their own protection? So this I'm going to steal shamelessly from Ed. He has made me a believer. So obviously... If you're so inclined in your situation, maybe you're security, law enforcement, or you're in a country that allows you to carry a weapon system, hey, that's a good place to be. You know, I'd rather be, you know, a warrior in a garden than a garden in a warrior. You know, I'd rather have the tools available to me to to protect myself. Having said that, we come into situations all the time that are non-permissive. You say you, you you know, dealing with the gun laws you have in the Kuwait. Well, guess what, James? I have, I'm, I'm a you know, do you one better? I live in California. So your gun laws are way better than mine. (laughs) Um, 
And so we're not, we're not always in a situation where we can do that here, trying to get a concealed carry for a, a citizen of America in California. You, you better be, you know, a stepbrother to Gavin Newsom or somebody else like that. Cause it's not happening. But, um, you introduce a lot of problems also. If you're an unconditioned person, untrained, and that's not your life, even if it is your life and your career, introducing a gun can introduce problems too. Uh, and I mentioned this before. I had an old cop, old crusty cop tell me this. Every time as a cop, when you're armed or you're concealed carry and you're armed, every situation you get into, you've just introduced a gun into that situation. So that's a big, big responsibility. You got to make sure you're you're aware of. I I, I've do, I do work for churches and synagogues here in California. And I, let's just say I have one organization. He has 12 parishioners that have their concealed carry and he's scared to death of them. He's scared to death of 12 people in the congregation, all pulling out guns at the same time. So really thinking about engaging your brain before you engage your weapon system. And I really like knives, especially, you know, the legal knives, because Ed has taught me one as for a woman what I share with my wife and my family members as a woman, I like knives too because they're concealable. People don't see them coming. I don't like advertising my tools that I have, so I won't open carry a gun. I don't want you to know I have a gun, especially if it gets into kind of a knockout, drag out fight and maybe we go to the floor. Uh, my wife can use a knife. And, we, you know, the way knives work, and Ed will tell you, I can stab you a lot of times before you even realize what's going on. So that is my biggest thing. And oftentimes you'll find some type of edge blade is usually permissive, but you better know how to use it. On top of one thing I did, this is anecdotal, but, you know, again, it's making me a believer about knives is I have a clip. It's like a 30 second clip where all these riots were happening a couple months ago. And he had like what looked like a mom and her teenage boy, kids, probably 15, 16, very young she is got made the wrong turn into this hostile crowd, and they're trying to kick the windows out, beating on the frame. There's a sunroof. This kid, the 16-year-old kid, comes out the top, and he's got like a buck knife in his hand. This is probably a four- or five-inch blade. Nothing crazy, but he starts waving this thing around on top of the roof and all these road protesters. What do you think all the protesters did, James? They ran away. Hey, they beat feet, okay? For me, you can, you've seen similar situations where someone pulls a gun. If you pull a gun on somebody, you better be willing and prepared to use it because someone might call your bluff or pull that gun right out of your hands or you fumble it or drop it. Now they have a gun, but um, it just seems like a lot of control with that knife and those people moved. So I don't know. That's anecdotally for me. I like that ability to back up and especially actually, James, um, your your fellow brothers in the in the British military and the infantry actually got a commendation back in the invasion of the war, I can't remember specifically, but they were in a situation where they're completely out of ammo. So they had machine guns, they had hand grenades, they had rifles armed to the teeth, but they were in a situation where they were locked in by the insurgents and they'd ran out of ammo. So what does uh, the uh, lieutenant do? He goes, Roger that, boys, fix bayonets. This is like 2001 and we're fixing bayonets. He has everyone fix bayonets. He has them put cami paint on, makes them look crazy. And they come out of this building and they rush the bad guy trench line. Nothing but bayonets. And they're huge, you know, <laughs> I won't say. And they scatter every <laughs> insurgent there. They scatter every one of them. The surgeons with loaded AKs are running for the hills because no one wants to get stuck with a bayonet, you know. So sometimes people get courageous when a gun comes out, but no one seems very courageous when an edged weapon comes out. 
Very interesting. Thank you so much. Yeah, I saw it. Was it you that posted the other day just to, to illustrate the damage? And this is a, a, a awful video, but it was, I, it looked like maybe somewhere in South America again, but it was a bunch of uh, men at, at the table sitting down and the guy with the baseball cap approaches them and then one stabs him multiple times. And you can tell he just lay down and died right there, probably within five seconds. Yep. yep. No reaction. Hydraulic kill. Yeah. And that's how quick it is. And people don't realize how quick these situations escalate and if you have people listening squirming about the thought of giving your wife a knife you know you need to harden yourself you need to become more resilient because in 2020 right here right now i want all of you to think about with all the craziness with all the refugee populations the geopolitical the covid happening if we had to guess is the violence gonna go up or is the violence gonna go down (laughs) yeah good point Absolutely. All right. Well, then transitioning thing. So for people listening, obviously, the beautiful thing about this is now it's okay. You, you've you've gleaned our attention. Now what? So um, tell us about the safe training that you offer. Yeah. So I've been running around teaching this stuff for about 13 years, over a decade, about 13 years now. About four of those years have been in business, uh, hung my own signal. When I found a severe lack of this information out in our communities and our churches and, and uh, organizations and corporations, Obviously, we have a lack of it in our military and law enforcement, and I still train them. But at least with the military and law enforcement, James, they ha- we start with some amount of training. At least we're kind of armed with some training. Maybe not this specific training, but at least we're armed. Whereas our civilian population, our citizens, our people, our churchgoers, they're starting from zero. They're starting sometimes 10, 10 steps behind. So I was running around teaching this stuff. And I was killing myself. Everyone wants this information. When the second you start talking about it, people bite in. Everyone's hearing about what to do in active shooter. Everybody's hearing about run, hide, fight. But nobody's talking about pre-incidents, left of bang, how to disrupt that. And I'm the only one running around with specific step-by-step you know, concepts to keep yourself safe. You hear a lot of that stuff, people talking about situational awareness. Head on a swivel, complacency kills. You know, that means different things to different people. So we have to standardize it. So one, I was dying. I was flying all over this globe. And so that's why I developed the safe instructor program. I had to clone myself. I have to make make a bunch of me's out there to get this training out there. So I developed a safe training program to fit that need. It's nine modules of training. It's all online and it's all self-paced. I did that for, you know, because everyone's got a life and kids and everything has stuff going on. So I didn't want to uh, deadline anything. And what I do in the safe training programs, I give you everything I have. I give you every whiz bang secret I have to get this information into your head very quickly to make sure you're being aware and you understand the concepts, but to also get it out to our communities. We have to viralize this stuff, James. It's not enough that I'm teaching it. It's not enough that, I mean, James, you're, you're an awesome dude and you're doing great stuff with the information you put out to your crowd. But my ulterior motive is by hook or by crook, I'm going to get this information to people. I'm going to get this training out of people whatever way I can. So that's why I'm out here really pushing my safe instructor program. And it's not just an online training program. Once you come in, you come into the family. There's a whole online training portal filled with tons and tons of my nine modules of knowledge, not only the business section, but the specific uh, awareness skills, but how to get this information to our communities quickly and actually how to generate revenue. 
So that's what I'm doing with a safe program. And you're coming into a community. You get access to our private Facebook group. And if you like this ranting I'm talking about, most of your listeners are probably like, oh, God, shut up. But <laughs> for your listeners that do like it, you have access to me. It's not like you're just buying an online course. There's a, a small community of 400 of my safe instructors that I vetted around this globe to get this information out there. They're making money, they're generating revenue, and they're keeping our community safe as we speak. Love it. And where can people find that online? So I'm going to include a link right here uh, for you to push out there, James. But if anybody goes to EmergenceDisrupt.com, that's our website. Uh, and if you Google this link, I'll give it to you, James, EmergenceDisrupt.com/freewebinar. Uh, that's how you're going to get my training immediately. And that's a free training session you can log into. That one doesn't even cost you anything. I just want you to really deep dive about the specifics of what we, we're doing here with a safe program globally. Beautiful. And I know you were on Byron Rogers' um, Protector Symposium. So what were you kind of uh, dis disseminating on that? Oh, we went, we went down the rabbit hole with Byron. We went into specific indicators with Byron and his team. And uh, Byron really just brings it out of me because he brings that whole executive protection component. So if any of your listeners are trying to make the connection there in that industry, or maybe they're veterans of the industry, that guy can really hone the skills when it comes to specifics. Uh, so not only did we do the observables with the protector symposium, you guys can still check that out online because I even went into the planning stages once you start getting good at understanding situational awareness and watching these things happen in front of you, I can then start teaching you to reverse engineer some of these situations and make these anomalies pop up right in front of you, Just kind of force them to happen right in front of you. Uh, that way you can control some of the actions happening around you. So yeah, we really went down a great rabbit hole with that protector symposium. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Well then transitioning to some closing questions. The first one I love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend that can be related to what we've discussed today or something completely different? I'm going to go on a, on a limb here. There's a lot of books I recommend when you come into the safe training program, every module has a different reading list. So if you want this information, get in the safe program and I'll give you tons and tons and tons of books. But the one book I think that's made the most positive impact, especially during these COVID times. And it's something that I think people should definitely be reading right now. It's the author's name is Napoleon Hill and it's think and grow rich. And obviously think and grow rich. It has a revenue component. It's about making money for your family. But Napoleon Hill wrote this book in 1933, I think. And I want everyone to get the audio book, buy the book if you have to, whatever you got to do to listen to what he's saying. But you will just laugh out loud about the application of what he's saying in 1933 and how well and how germane it applies to today, 2020, Christmas time, COVID and all the crazy stuff happening. He talks about revenue generation and making money and setting your family up for success, but it's also about to um, think about divergent thinking, not going along the same path everybody else is. Everyone's going down that negative path, woe is me, COVID pandemic, and there's a lot of people out there that are doing very good things that are being very successful, and it's about changing your mindset to see those opportunities. So Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, very powerful stuff. Beautiful and very pertinent too. Yeah, if it's they was probably coming out of the Great Depression when he was writing it. Exactly, exactly. I mean, it's perfect timing. Beautiful. All right. Well, then the same question, but a, a movie and or a documentary. Ooh, ooh, oof, oof, oof. That is tough. Mm. Uh, documentary. I'm gonna go with the uh, the last days of the Third Reich. You can actually get this one on YouTube. 
I'm kind of a history buff, but I, 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 everyone's seen lots of documentaries on um, the Third Reich and the Nazis and the World War II. But I like this one specifically because it was going through the mindset of some of the the inner circle of the uh, Nazi regime at the time. And it's very interesting. Even at the top, you have Goebbels and Himmler and all the people you hear about. Not every one of those guys was a believer, you know. They really – they made it seem like it, but when push came to shove, the Russians got into Berlin, all those big egos started to fall apart. They started to do surrender you know, planning, except Hitler, who killed himself with Eva Braun and, and Goebbels and his wife and actually killed his six kids with him. So that to me is very interesting. How does someone become such a believer that so hardcore into their kind of horrible loop they've gone in that way do that as opposed to the other people in that inner circle that, you know, skied off the first second it looked bad. Um, so that's documentary and movie. Hmm. You know what? Uh, a very motivating one. I loved it because of, because of the filming and the history was Dunkirk. Uh, if you watch that one. Great film. Is that what it was called? Yes, yeah. Absolutely. That one scene in there, talk about movie magic, you know, not not only the history, but that one crazy scene of him walking through was done in one take. One take with all these crazy explosions happening and all this action was done with one take. So uh, kudos to them. Yeah. Did you see 1917? That's what I'm thinking. That's what, uh, I'm thinking of 1917. Okay. Not yeah. yeah, that's right. That's so, I think Dunkirk, about. they did in very minimal um, shots as well. But yeah, Dunkirk, yeah. Um, 1917 was great. That was the one I'm thinking about, where they want that one huge walking scene. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. All right, well, then the next question, is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Oh, I got a hot one for you, James. He's like a leprechaun, too. If He's catch me if, it, catch him <laughs> him, catch him if you can. But I want all your listeners, if you don't get him on, all your listeners should read this guy and understand him because he's great. I've had the pleasure of working with Dr. David Machimoto. Dr. David Matsumoto. This is, you ever meet people, James, in your life that you're like, you just, they, 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 you just feel very inadequate breathing the same air as them. Oh yeah. Most people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But there you go. Yeah. I'm, I'm always the dumbest guy in the room. <laughs> Dr. David Matsumoto is one of those guys. He's, you just Google him. He's done a bunch of great stuff academically. He is the PhD. He is the big brain of the stuff I'm talking about. I'm the mouthpiece teaching people those specific pre-event indicators. He is the PhD genius behind it. He goes into microfacial expressions, deception detection, macrofacial expressions. This is who you know people come in when they really uh, need to deep dive the academic section. On top of that, he's a great person. This guy is like a former uh, American Olympic judo coach. Uh, he's a professor. He's wrote like 20 books all on the subjects we're talking about. So if you like what I'm putting down, Dr. David Matsumoto has um, the, the genius PhD textbook version of that. And he's just a great guy that, that really knows how to teach this stuff. So Dr. David Matsumoto is a good one for you. Beautiful. I would love to get him on. Is this someone you'd be able to help me connect with? I, I think so. I haven't talked to David. If you hear, hear this happening, I haven't <laughs> talked to him in a while, but I, I, I don't know if he does podcasts. That's my thing. <laughs> one way to uh, find out. Yep, exactly. Beautiful. All right, then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you. What do you do to decompress? What do I do to decompress? I walk and I stretch a lot. You're going to laugh. You know, people, I was on Mike Ritland's podcast and he's like, so what are you doing for working out, brother? And he's this big, gruff Navy SEAL. I'm like, uh, man, I walk a lot. <laughs> 
my, the knees, the Marine Corps, you know, it's kind of nailed my knees. So when I say a walk, I, I walk three, four, five, six miles a day. Sometimes if I really got a crazy thought in my head or I'm really starting to work through some, t- some stuff. So at the end of the day, I'll, I'll get my three walks in and then on long, long 30, 40 minute stretching session to undo all the damage that I, that my chair is sitting, uh, done to me by answering emails and doing podcasts. Yeah, I can relate to both of those. We went for a walk with my wife this morning. I do work out as well. But um, yeah, I think for anyone that's in their 40s and 50s, especially men, you're probably going to get more out of a mobility program than you are a strength program. The Marine Corps has robbed me from all the cartilage from like my waist down. So everything kind of hurts and creaks nowadays. <laughs> yeah, fire service is the same. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. All right. So then the final question, if people want to reach out to you online, um, let's just re- repeat the website one more time. And then there are any uh, social media handles as well. Yeah, sure, James. Uh, you can find me. I'm all over the place. I'm on link- LinkedIn, on Facebook at Emergence, uh, Yusuf Badu at Emergence Disrupt. Uh, on Instagram, it's Yusuf Badu underscore Emergence. And finally, if you like what I'm putting down about the Safe Instructor Program, if you'd like to join the mission and uh, keep our community safe by teaching these skills, you can go to free.emergencedisrupt.com slash webinar. James, I'll shoot you a link to that. But that was going to give you the free training that I do to introduce you to the program and how we're effectively increasing everyone's situational awareness around us and generating some revenue around it for our communities. Beautiful. Well, I'll put that link on the uh, webpage that goes with this episode. But uh, I just want to say thank you so much. I mean, when I listened to you on Mike's podcast, and obviously I saw you a part of the team working with Byron on his project, um, you know, there's so much that people can take away from this conversation. There's so much more, obviously, that people need to learn. But I just want to say thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. No, thank you, James. Any any chance I can get to get out there and and sing this stuff from the rooftops is is great. And I want to thank you, man, uh, with all the craziness, especially the audience you're talking to, the fire, the EMS, the law enforcement. There's a lot of hate flying around. So uh, I want to applaud you because you're out here doing God's work out here with a lot of people that just don't getting that are not getting any recognition and are actually kind of getting beat up a little bit. So well done, my friend. 